Welcome to The Raw Review. My name is Matthew. And I'm Briley. And we'll be your co-hosts for this series of conversations where we'll be sitting down with collectors, artists, and other members of the Raw Dow community. Today we'll be talking with Acacia Victoria Adusenia, also known as Ava Silvery. Acacia is an internationally exhibited and published German Ghanaian visual artist currently based in Zurich, Switzerland. Works from her project Behold the Ocean have been collected by RawDAO, and she is also a member of Cyberbat DAO. We cover a lot of ground in this episode. Our reflections on the arts education system and what it didn't prepare us for, her father's background as a software engineer and how it led her to blockchain technology, the promises and shortcomings of Web3 and NFTs as a model for sustainably funding artists, and even horse girls. This will be the last episode of The Raw Review, and we're so grateful to have shared this time with Acacia. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to The Raw Review podcast, Acacia. Thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. We've always loved listening to the spaces that you host, so it's a real treat for us to have you on the other side of the mic for this episode. Let's start with something simple. Have you always had a relationship to photography? What has the medium meant to you at different points in your life, maybe before and after studying art in a university context? Great question. No, photography was like my complete excuse to stop painting. I'm not like the girl with a Leica from her granddad. I, I didn't even know my granddad, so <laughs> there's that. So I, I really was never that kind of person at all. I was always a painter and I was drawing. And shortly after dropping out from studying mathematics, because I was pretty young at that point, I think 16, I was in like a program for special kids <laughs> or kids <laughs> with special interests. I don't know. So I went to uni while I was still working on my high school degree, actually, to start studying mathematics. So this is, I think, where just to contextualize why I'm drawn to technological and logical systems in general. So there was some kind of an, a natural curiosity. But in terms of artistic expression, cameras, no, I didn't even watch films because my attention span has always been very selective yeah, and so fast forward, when I started studying fine arts at 19, I had been accepted into art school with paintings and drawings, very large scale, lots of color, experimentation, nothing polished. I mean, we had classes and courses. I enjoyed just learning and being absorbed. But suddenly I felt such a block because I, I was asking myself, well, what is my argument now? Like, how can I justify what I am doing? Because apparently... There needs to be a reason for anything that we're doing here. You know, I think that's something that just naturally comes as insecurity with the intellectualization of artistic expression and practice in general, which has its place. But it can also be something that many people never overcome and just give up. Or in my case, I just dropped the canvas and the pencils and the paint and thought, okay, I cannot move on here because I just don't know why I'm doing what I'm doing. So let me explore something else. And so I naturally transitioned to the dark room, which is where I found working with hands and chemicals, time, failure and this stuff. And that's when I was, I think, 19 or 20 years old. Yeah. And now I'm 32 and I'm doing photography now. Can you tell us about your experience living in Germany and studying art? I'm thinking particularly about the history of photography. Germany seems to carry a lot of baggage with the Bechers and the Dusseldorf School and, and also oh, the history of the goodness. Bauhaus. And I'm wondering kind of how this history or maybe other histories, I mean, this is Germany after all, did that hang in the air? Or was that oppressive in any way for you? No, zero. Absolutely not. I think, you know, if the Bechers knew that in 2022, when we have Web3 and VR, we would still reference them photographing towers in series as being relevant, they must be so proud of themselves, maybe, or just laughing because, I mean, anyway, <laughs> Becher, yeah, awesome, Gorski, Rof, great. No, I don't care. <laughs> I really don't care as much. And I also have to say, like Becher and the stuff like Düsseldorf and also around Köln, I didn't go to school there. 
I went to the Hochschule der Bildenden Künste Saar or University of Fine Arts um, Saarbrücken, which is a smaller city in the western rural part of Germany, formerly French. And so I was studying with people who were less dogmatic, I guess. And I was lucky to have a professor who was distant enough to actually embrace the diversity of how his students' practices evolved. And so, yes, we would look at stuff from the old days from time to time, but he would never be interested in us referencing them, because why? And I think that's something that is very rare. It is also something that is very risky because the traditional system still works in a way that, you know, look at the CV. Is there Berlin, New York, and London? Who did you study with? But these people are all going to die. And there has to be something new. And so no oppression at all in my case. I get that this is what comes with Germany. But I did collect seven NFTs of August Sander. <laughs> <laughs> Do you feel differently about art institutions now, having been removed from that and being a practicing artist versus when you were a student? And what has that transition been like for you? I'm sitting on my couch and looking at the opposite wall in my studio, which is also the place where I live. And in the center, there is this diptych of a self-portrait of me in a mirror on the ship to Antarctica. And then on the, on the other side, it's just this macro exposure of a raw piece of beef, which is what we had every other day on the ship. And so this is, I feel like this is where you're really going with these questions because uh, <laughs> it was horrible and it was very painful. Something that you're not taught by institutions and you don't have to be taught by someone. You're just going to experience it yourself. So I'm not blaming structure for not teaching me how to make money or how to survive or whatever. And that's not even my main point. But I think a process that not many people really articulate too well is the emancipation that is absolutely urgently necessary when you leave an artistic institution because the people you're studying with You know, they get their salary every single month and are in a very secure place. Oftentimes they really don't even follow an active practice anymore. But at the same time, mm -hmm. you have the most, like you have the most existential conversations with them. Oftentimes a lot of alcohol is involved as well. And it is so dramatic and it is so intense and it is so far from any, like any strategic way to build your life and I'm not saying that there is no place for this existential phase. I think a lot can happen from that intensity and like a pathetic beingness. But at some point you have to grow up and overcome and just make fucking money and not be too, you know, intellectual or too like precious to just wash the dishes for someone else. Mm. And I removed myself from the context I was living in immediately. I didn't stay in the city any longer. I came to Switzerland right away where I knew nobody. And I just started out as working as a waitress because that's what I knew. And then uh, slowly got other job before I then made the transition to be self-employed in 2019. But it took years for me to work on something and not just immediately wonder, what would my professor say now? Even though I didn't care too much back then, I was a horrible student. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, again, long answer, but I just wish, you know, and maybe there's a place for that. And we are talking because we know each other from the internet and like, and blockchain is interesting. Maybe there's a place for that in photography related DAOs to kind of find formats that help bridge that painful gap between an education where everybody is paid to care about your work and the point where you might find a glimmer of hope in your future as an artist. Because in between, nobody gives a shit about you. And that can take 10, 15 years. And you just have to beg in so much rejection, which is completely fine for me, but it is not for everyone. Yeah, definitely. Matthew and I talk all the time about our reflections and also our frustrations about having gone through formal arts education and how there's a huge disconnect between these older profs that typically aren't practicing artists or, you know, they have lots of assistants that are doing their production work and aren't necessarily always in a place to actually give critiques because they don't practice anymore. And also the disconnect between like their salaries and the people that are struggling to get by that are artists that, you know, have no way to make money and then 
this pressure to continue thinking in the way that you do when you're in school and then graduating and you know not being promised any job whatsoever and having to build up a career with nothing once you like leave the school like it's very difficult to make that transition and I agree it can take years to not only build up the practice but to just sort of get past that process of thinking about photography and being an artist through the lens of arts education and maybe doing what you want to do, what makes you feel good and not having all of those pressures on you. Was there any moment for you when you were within a crisis? I obviously don't know how like how it manifested itself for, for you, but I, I see that we kind of really know what the other person was talking about. So I wonder. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Goodness, I'm so sorry. <laughs> But, no, no. Do you remember any shift where you were like, okay, this is why it was really worth it or or the opposite? Yeah, I mean, even like just graduating from the BFA program, I had different jobs that were in discussion about like various internships and they had fallen through. And I actually had, I was applying for jobs everywhere, even like Wendy's, Tim Hortons, and I wasn't hearing back from anyone and I had no money. And I actually slept on my friend's couch for like the first three months of the summer because I had nowhere else to go. And it was so fucked up to like have this degree and not be able to get work and not know how I was going to be able to get over this hurdle and feeling the frustration that I wasn't really prepared to go out in the world and be able to look after myself despite having spent four years in the institution. And that was one of the few moments where I questioned what I was being able to take away from the practice and what it was setting me up for. And There was just a lot that I felt frustrated by as someone that at the time didn't have the means to just start making work or, you know, wasn't getting the grants because of, you know, the work wasn't favored by the people that make those decisions and whatnot. So, yeah, lots of lots of pain points around that. At least we're not alone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned that you're currently living in Switzerland mm -hmm. and I find that interesting because You studied in Germany, you're a Ghanaian German artist living there. So like, I'm wondering how you made the move over there. Okay, I'm just going to give you the facts because I, I really like at some point I just need to make this as short as possible. So I graduated in 2015, got my diploma and for years I've been working in hospitality. And what I had also been doing for many, many years was being a trainer in the equestrian industry. And at that point when I graduated, I had been training endurance race horses for a couple of years already and uh, had competed internationally up to 120 kilometer races and all of that stuff. So I had a very good reputation and standing in European different stables, especially in France, in that sports. So my plan after art school was, of course, I'm gonna go work as a racehorse trainer and continue this because that's what I want to do now. <laughs> so long story short. <laughs> I, um, okay. I, I got a contract as an endurance horse trainer in at Brooklyn Stables in Queensland, Australia. And I had Minga as my dog at that point. Then a couple of weeks before, my dog was severely injured and was bitten by another dog and uh, he had to go to surgery or whatever. And I had to decide, do I leave him behind? Because like the quarantine restrictions for pets in Australia are insane. And I was scared to having to leave him in quarantine or whatever because he wasn't fit enough to go out. And so I had to cancel the contract, but I was broke. And so I knew <laughs> I wanted to stay in like Southern or Middle Central Europe to be still close to the horses. And this is how I found Switzerland, because they have this skiing season. And so they use foreigners who think they earn a lot when they come to Switzerland, but actually are being exploited. But, you know, they're still happy because it's the first time making money in Switzerland. <laughs> right. So I was one of those foreigners and that's how I came to Switzerland. And I shared a five, six, seven square meter bedroom with my dog at night. And at daytime, I would, I would work in the hotel, uh, lived there for a couple of months until the season was over. And I did that for half a year or something and never in my in a million years did I plan to actually stay in this country. But it's been seven years because one thing came after the next. Anyway, there you have it. 
It's funny that you bring up the equestrian training and the horses because we were actually going to ask you about that because we were kind of sleuthing around your website and we were like, what? What is it? Horses? <laughs> Suffice to say, it's, it's a pretty unique line on a CV that we don't usually see. So thank you <laughs> for giving us some context <laughs> about the equestrian training because I, I don't know, oh. for us, it's fascinating. It's yeah. Yeah, it's it's just funny because you know there's like that that trope of the American like a, a horse girl or whatever, and then I can tell from the way that you described it on the website they were very serious about this and that it was like a thing that you did professionally. So it's, it's very intriguing. The 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 horse girl trope. Can you can you tell me more about that? <laughs> well, you know, there, there's who like this, she? you know, the, these American, you know, teenagers who are kind of well off and are, you know, are into mm. horses and this kind of leisurely interest and, you know, daddy buys them a horse kind of thing. They read Heartland oh, yeah. books about yeah. horses and like their right. whole thing is about horses. Yeah. I know them from afar because I worked for their parents. <laughs> so, yeah, I get it. They exist in Europe as well, obviously. So, yeah, get it. Yeah, there's this amazing, Riley just mentioned this TV show in Canada called Heartland. And it's this incredibly dramatic show about this family and the horses and all this. And I would strongly recommend, I mean, it's a terrible show, but I would recommend that you watch it for like five minutes because it's the most Canadian sense of TV or media that you'll ever encounter. It's just nothing happens. They're just on this ranch talking about horses and very mundane, boring shit. And it's just, it's the weird show i would really recommend going on youtube and trying to find like a short clip of heartland um, yeah I'm it's already extremely googling. bizarre <laughs> i'm already googling and it looks like mcleod's daughters or something yeah this would have been my thing at like 13 or something i would have cried and sobbed and like you know cared about the guys and the horses totally thanks for the tip <laughs> <laughs> it's so earnest and dramatic anyway oh yeah i would highly recommend oh yeah thanks so much appreciate it <laughs> All right. So we'll change gears a little bit from the horses. So Ra has acquired a few works from your series, Behold the Ocean, which weaves together many different elements. Uh, there's climate change, a time of global crisis, but also time of personal mourning and, and pain in your life. And so for listeners who might not be familiar with the project, can you tell us a bit about Behold the Ocean and the different parts that make up the project, which I realize is not an easy task. It's a complex project. <laughs> We hope the ocean is a photographic exploration of the circumstances of climate research in the southernmost of Patagonia slash uh, the Antarctic region in collaboration with local oceanographers who are concerned with invisible aspects of the effects of climate change on the marine ecosystem. That's in short the red line in the project, and I've been working on this pre-production-wise since 2019, but I first flew down in 2020 in December and started production there. And now fast forward after having concluded the second expedition to the same region, but just much more south. Now I'm sitting here in my studio on track to really bring the project to a close with one, um, a photography book I'm going to publish with a Swiss publishing house called Edition Think. Second, a solo exhibition that will open in November at the Centre de Photographie à Genève in, uh, in Geneva, in Switzerland, curated by Donald Planchot. Obviously, and that's why we know each other, the project has a very heavy NFT component as well. I have three smart contracts right now associated with the project, one of them being on Tez and two of them being on ETH. Yeah, the collection that you acquired works from chapter one compared to, you know, the more formally homogeneous NFT photography collections that you can see in the market compared to them. I would say it's a more of a collage experimental collection of one-on-one -on -one photographs with descriptions that include interviews I made with the scientists. And then I also have another smart contract that you can mint from directly, which currently has a little bit over 4,000 NFTs. And that's a generative art project, actually very simple. It's like these couple of thousands of NFTs were generated by code based on photograph from the ocean, the Estrecho de Marianas, where we had our two expeditions. And it also includes scientific data that is completely abstract in the pieces. Yeah, how, how did I do? 
<laughs> You're doing great. It's funny that you describe this project as more of a collage or experimental project that maybe runs a little bit counter to some of the other more popular genres in NFT photography. Mm -hmm. This is something that Bradley and I have thought a lot about, which is sort of the way that the typology can really do well in NFTs because, mm -hmm. I, I mean, for so many different reasons, but I think partly because it is immediately understood because you see one and you understand the others and it makes for such good content, you know, like you can post a GM mm -hmm. with these right. different works from the typology and there's just something about it that turns into a bit of a meme and it gets into people's mm -hmm. brains and it locks in. And we've both thought about how this might make it harder for other types of work to actually succeed because it's becoming apparent that the highest valued collections are all typologies, which is, I think, important to keep in mind. Mm -hmm. You know, twin flames, carpoolers, etc. Et which is not to say that this is not important work because it is, but there's something I think to unpack there in terms of what work manages to circulate well and succeed in the space. Yeah, 100%. Such an important aspect and tied to the idea of success is like, I mean, success is always relative to the expectation you have in like this trajectory of me working on and tweaking the project until I finally had a hard-coded custom-built website. Thanks to Sam King. Big shout out to my developer. Honestly, like one of the best people in the space. Don't send him more email. Yes, send him more email, but like don't be nice to him. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> It's like, so grateful I met him on Discord, actually. I didn't have the expectation when I released the project after speaking to, I don't know, 20 collectors or so on one-on-one -on -one Zooms. I didn't have the expectations to like sell out the project or mint out project within 48 hours, which was uh, standard back then in November. But I said to myself, okay, I'm going to give myself a few weeks. And now it's... August, it still has not sold out. And in the meantime, I really, really changed my perspective on the space, but also was thrown back upon myself asking, what's the lesson there that you haven't been confronted with for the first time? Like, I, I think now I have a much healthier perspective on the space, much more realistic idea that is authentic to who I know I am which is never going to be the person that just releases a typological project to, you know, make it as easy as possible for people, at least not with this intention. And I also, like, I entered this space in one of the most challenging ways possible. I didn't do what others were doing. I didn't mint what others were minting, and I didn't price it the way they were pricing it because I was very, very overwhelmed and confused last year in May. And so I think it's just part of, like, my journey in in this space. And I wish for the collection to just finally be sold out someday. But I, you know, I just decided to keep working on all of the other projects I'm having and start releasing them as well. And Behold the Ocean just has the absolute right with all its complexity, beauty and pain to just live on its very own timeline. It reminds me actually of the previous recording for the raw review that we did with Alejandro and we talked about how there's this enormous pressure to sell out a collection and it's kind of interesting because he also works to onboard a lot of traditional photographers from the space and he had this one statement that really stuck out to me that he as a photographer who has been selling prints for like 60 years yes. but doesn't have a collection that's sold out of course and yes. you know, there's this idea that we have to sell out but that doesn't necessarily dictate the success but that's obviously dependent on what you measure and value success by and I definitely think this space pushes a sort of unhealthy narrative about what that is based on the idea of selling out right away and the venting site for behold the ocean which i love that site i'm not gonna spam your developer but it's a really beautiful site but you mentioned that your dad told you about web 3 before you understood what web 2 was and i want to know what exactly did he say or like how did he explain this to you he uh was a person who didn't explain something to me until I clearly signaled to him that I was going to listen. Uh, I mean, family is always so complicated, right? Like now in hindsight, and like the first anniversary of his death is just uh, coming up now on Monday, actually. And so in hindsight, I know, oh man, I should have just 
sometimes I should have just listened much more because he was such an incredibly intelligent and wise and kind and gentle soul. And we had the best sometimes 10 hour long conversations and I would listen. But I was also super stubborn because I, I was going to make it without him because I always had to. And so when I became an adult woman and he had like this severe accident and we started connecting so much closer than we ever had before, at least in terms of communication, knowing what the other one was up to. I mean, I met him as a woman then. And I think having had the pressure to have to grow up basically without him, parents were divorced and then going through a lot of pain. I wasn't going to just surrender and say, okay, what do you have to teach me? Because I was still about to prove to him or show to him that I became what I became without him. And so when he was like mentioning Web3, he said it in the briefest way. Like when I say he told me about Web3 before I knew what Web2 was, it was literally just him saying, Akosia, du musst dich unbedingt mit uh, Web3 beschäftigen, which just means, because I really have to you should really get into Web3. And he said this several times with a background of a software engineer and coder. And whenever he said something seemingly without context, because there was no context whenever he said this, I knew it had weight. Whatever he said, everything he said had weight. In the last year of his life, we were talking about investment and the stuff. This is actually how I got into crypto because he was blind for the last five years of his life. And so he needed help with most of the things in his life. And said to me, Akosa, I think I want you to be the person to help me start investing because I haven't done this yet. And let's see what we can do. What are you interested in? And so I said, okay, let me go explore crypto. And that's how I got into crypto and then eventually NFTs. And in that context, I think he just tried to listen to as many like Lex Friedman podcasts as possible <laughs> and, and other stuff. And it really like reunited his extreme passion for technology and code. That's, that was his language. Yes, sometimes he would just tell me what he had listened to and not expect from me to, you know, confirm I was going to take any action in any shape or form because he didn't want to provoke me, I guess. And it was the same with Web3. I think he knew whenever he was just telling me something and immediately stepped back, he knew that I would find my own timing to actually explore it in a way that would make me feel... <laughs> That it wasn't advice from him, <laughs> my own decision, if that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think that your dad's background as a software engineer helped you stay sort of open-minded and curious when learning about new technologies? I mean, blockchain specifically, but maybe others as well. It just feels like, at least in the last few years, that the media narrative is so strong that it can be sometimes difficult to even talk about blockchain tech with people who are outside of this niche because they've already been convinced that it's bad for various reasons, whether that's the environment or the idea of it all being a scam or these different things. I'm wondering sort of how you were able to approach it earnestly and with a curiosity to learn and whether that was maybe partly as a result of your father's attitude towards learning as well that somehow passed along to you. Yeah, I guess it's part of my genetics that I have from him. And also my mom, she's exactly the same way, just in different areas. So yes, I think just the pure joy of learning new things, exploring, trying to understand it, just knock your head against the wall as many times as it's necessary until it breaks or, <laughs> until, or until your head has like found <laughs> the kind of shape it needs to actually process what you were trying to understand in the first place, whatever it may be. But yes, I, I definitely have that from him. But I also think it's interesting what you mentioned, like the media narrative and the stuff like I'm not a person to consume a lot of media necessarily to understand stuff. I think you stumble upon a piece of media or news and either it triggers your interest or it does not. And if it does, then you will become a person to understand about and you don't need that superficial pop cultural landscape of quick media anymore. So you pass that point very quickly. And so I think the people that you just mentioned, another trope, I guess, I think they consume media for entertainment, which is fine. Being entertained by news because you just want to talk about how bad new things are. I think there are these kinds of people, but 
There are others who just understand that there is something to it and it's not about just gossiping around and, you know, wasting time defending the status quo that is so comfortable or uncomfortable actually for you. But actually to pass a point and see, okay, what could my contribution to that look like? Or where are these smart people coming from who built that stuff and how can I learn from that? And so, yes, I think generally my parents' attitude towards new things and, and technology, I think it's yeah, something in my DNA maybe, but unfortunately I'm not smart enough to be a developer myself. <laughs> so, so, yeah. <laughs> anyway, but I, yeah, so I still enjoy looking at, looking at this stuff. It's interesting because... I guess I just find it a bit uncanny, some of the like similarities that I share with you, because you mentioned meeting your dad as a woman. And I feel very similarly about my mom, who also had an accident and is also blind, is fortunately with us now still. But now our relationship is me as a woman and like learning these new technologies. And with my sisters that are older than me, they had this idea of how they should raise their children and that they should tell them to go to law school or whatever. And then they realized that that was not the way to raise a child that doesn't want to go to law school or whatever, because she's no longer doing that. And then when it came to raising me and me, me going to school and whatnot, it was very open-minded of like, okay, like whatever you want to do, we're going to be supportive of whatever you want to do. And I think that really allowed for us to also be able to have an open conversation about blockchain and FTEs, even though they don't necessarily understand a lot of it, they're open-minded to it, which always blows my mind because of the media narrative of what this technology is about and how it can be really hard to talk about these things to people that are not necessarily in this space. Yeah, I'm super surprised. Like, I, I don't know. Yeah, immediate connection because it's such a particular circumstance that we experience that, you know, as soon as you hear someone, I've never heard of someone who had the same experience. So I'm like, I'm like, Briley, I want to fly to Canada and get to know you more. Let's hang out, go on a road trip or Please. something and just, and just <laughs> let loose and not care about like, you know, and just talk and, and make a project or something. Cause like, yes, I mean, this is, this is very particular. Like, do you want to say when that happened? Yeah, it actually happened before I was born. Mm -hmm. So my sisters are eight to 10 years older than me. And mm -hmm. she had a work accident about 35 years ago. Mm -hmm. She was a paralegal, like working in an office. And she opened this closet full of documents and they weren't stacked poorly and they fell on her face. Wow. And immediately her right eye was just gone. Wow. And because of the way that eyes are connected one another, actually over the last 30 or so years, she's slowly lost her vision in the other eye. And because of the way the accident happened and it was just very shitty the way the workplace dealt with the situation, but also the surgeries that existed 30 years ago were not nearly as promising as they were today about restoring vision or whatever. So yeah, lots of pain points there about the way that was responded to by the workplace, but also that the suffering that comes as a result of that. So yeah, I've always, ever since I went to your website to see like what your work was about, I, I definitely felt a connection there. So please come to Canada or I'll come there or something because... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Let's do, yeah. Oh, yeah. And Matthew, obviously, you're, you're part of it, of it too. I didn't mean to exclude. exclude. Okay. Well, thank you. I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. We just exiled Matthew from the podcast. I'll just oh, leave yeah. now oh, yeah. and I'll, I'll leave you two to it. And uh, it's been great, you know? <laughs> Yeah, okay, yeah. So changing things up a little bit, I guess going back to Web3 and the art world, especially the traditional art world, it feels like the grant system there is very centralized and biased towards certain types of work and almost necessitates a post-secondary arts education. You know, if someone wants to be represented by a commercial gallery, they also need an active CV filled with exhibitions and publications, which requires a significant investment with no guarantee of financial return. In other words, it's really expensive to be an artist that is eligible even for modest grants or awards. And we noticed with Behold the Ocean that you crowdfunded it and there's also an art blocks collection. I hope I pronounce it right to write a scope in which 10% of the primary sales and all of the secondary sale royalties go to your project. And so I'm wondering, do you think that Web3 unlocks new and sustainable ways for artists to fund their work? You know, how do we move beyond the current funding models of the traditional art world? Great question. And I love that you mentioned, like, thank you for researching so much. <laughs> and, 
<laughs> yeah. And cool that you mentioned Hilidoscopes. I don't know how to pronounce it correctly either by like the super brain Daimaliad, who is just one <laughs> of my like he's just an incredible person. New ways, Web3, new ways, yeah, to fund uh, artistic practice and and our fucking rent and dogs and like <laughs> <laughs> the, whatever our fridge contains, like just, just having a life. Um, new ways, yes. Sustainable ways, I don't know. So I think I'm at an interesting point right now. I mean, we are surrounded in the NFT photography space. We are surrounded by people who just became rich AF within a couple of days suddenly. Mm -hmm. We know what it, what that means. Obviously, they have been working on their stuff, blah, blah, blah. But now, but in the space, suddenly... They don't have anything to worry about anymore, which I don't know anyone well enough in the space who, quote unquote, made it to actually approach them and ask them that or to assume that it was that way for them. But I remember when I first made my crowdfunding campaign, obviously I also submitted it to foundations and institutions and grants and whatever, but everyone at the time was focused on COVID-19 related projects. And on top of that, the space is just very competitive. And so I was stubborn and said, I have to go there anyway. So I'm going to just do what I would never do in my entire life, which is getting myself out there with a crowdfunding campaign and fail in public. I succeeded, but it was the biggest amount of money I ever received in one go. And I don't come from money. I always say like we were rich or wealthy in, in books and imagination, but we never like we never owned a house. My father passed away in very, very uh, simple circumstances, and I hope my mother doesn't have to, because I hope she's around for long enough for me to actually change something for her circumstances. But long story short, I do not come from money. I come from scarcity and from being able to make it work somehow. And it's ironic that I'm sitting in the most expensive country in the world right now in the middle of the most expensive city here, which is Zurich. I kind of made it until here. It's sick. But I remember like with the crowdfunding campaign, suddenly there was like a five digit number on my bank account, which I had never seen. Obviously the money was for the production cost, but I experienced the panic attack and severe anxiety because I didn't believe that this wasn't me. This wasn't a part of me. And so I think what I want to get at is you might, you know, look at the NFT space objectively and see how much money is flying around and how people are like, able to make a living suddenly. But I think everyone comes with their own baggage and own blocks. And I don't think it is as easy as it might seem from the outside. And both of you know it, obviously. The question is like, it's much harder in a way because we are so surrounded by people who suddenly changed their lives in a matter of 15 seconds because they dropped on quantum. And I think it's very, very difficult to, and unsustainable, to sustain yourself 24-7 in this environment while you are just not meeting them at their level over and over again. And I actually think it's much harder than any other environment artistically that I've experienced before because it's so incredibly competitive, but then also embedded into this toxic fabric of like false positivity. I'm just real here because the majority of the people who are investing a significant amount of time in this space are never going to be able to live from their work because they wouldn't be outside of the space either. The percentage is just very low. And it's not because, you know, their work is bad or like, to, I mean, what do I know why it is the case? But we see the numbers and we just know it's not the case. So I never want to paint the picture of Web3 being a savior of an artistic future, because I think we had an opportunity window or several opportunity windows based on genre, based on discipline, based on circles of people, based on, you know, activity of different apps. We had different opportunity windows in the last couple of months, and they worked very well for some people. But we see over and over again how these windows are becoming saturated quicker and quicker, if you know what I mean. And we have to move on to the next scheme or to the next strategy or like the next thing that excites people in order to put people into that framework who then make it within that thing. I hope kind of it becomes clear. I think maybe it's not the answer you expected, but I just, I didn't just want to confirm, oh yeah, it's like, like Web3 is going to just going to save the artists. I don't believe in that. Honestly, I think it really takes just as much effort and a lot of like thick skin to realize and recognize that you might not be one of the very, very rare people percentage wise who's going to make it 
Yeah, if if you want to, I mean, if you want to hear something positive, um, uh, I can, I can, I can, like, I can dig more and give you positive examples. But we talk about this so much about you know the people who like highlight the people who sold out, who made it. But but what about like the ninety nine percent? I think there's a constant tension between the toxic positivity and everything that that can bring because there's a lack of criticality in the space, right? We're very afraid to tell someone that their work isn't good or that there are things that they can improve. A lot of Twitter spaces are basically people saying, wow, you you know, you're so great. I'm so excited yeah. for all your things. You're yeah. so great. And it's this kind of circular reinforcement and there can be a lack of maybe honesty. So no, we appreciate your answer for exactly that reason, because I, I think you are being honest and, and forward. I think that there are a lot of windows of opportunity, but we still can observe many of the same inequities being replayed in the space that we're building, which doesn't mean that it doesn't have a uh, potential to improve things, but it, it does mean that we can still trace these same systems that might hold certain people back from succeeding versus others. I know that for both Bradley and myself, when we first really got into all of this, there is a sense of kind of euphoria about all mm -hmm. of the new tech and everything that was possible. And I think just being able to look at that big picture and build your own mental models of how these decentralized systems work against a lot of traditional systems, I, I think it is a useful way to look at things. But we also need to be wary of wearing the rose-colored glasses that it will fix everything because it won't and that we still have a lot of hierarchies and structures in place that do make for, like you said, a very lopsided experience where some succeed immensely and many do not succeed at all. I think there is still sort of a quiet background hum of that traditional power structure lingering. And I, I think we can see that play out in different ways. Just the fact that the top 10 photography collections account for, what is it, 90% of the total sales volume of NFT photography, but also there's many accounts, I won't name any names, but of wash trading and things of that nature happening to prop up certain projects and to generate froth around certain collections in order for certain collections to be deemed more valuable or more important or, or, or whatever. So I don't think I have a, a question, but I, I guess thinking big picture, do you feel like crypto and Web3 at this point in time is fulfilling some of its promises or do you feel like for the most part it's falling short? I wish I was more involved into crypto in general, DeFi in general, all that stuff, but I feel like such a fraud philosophizing about it, if that, that makes sense, because I, I don't always feel like that, but I don't, I just never want to come across as someone who believes, say, we're an expert at, at this at all, because I see I'm absolutely not. And I, I do believe that a technology doesn't have the responsibility to fulfill any promise. It's going to be us, you know, with the sticks and stones mm -hmm. or the blockchain doesn't really matter. And I don't think we have to be so surprised about more and more scams and like wallets drained and blockchains hacked being talked about every single day because we are just the same people. We will always be the same people. We're going to come, we're going to pee, cook, be sick from time to time and die and have the flaws that we have. I think Web3 makes it so easy right now to just disguise that by a very shiny new environment mm. that is oftentimes are very, very broken in the backend from what I can tell as someone who's not a developer, but we see it every day, right? But I mean, obviously I wouldn't do it and be in it if I wasn't actually a, a very, very, very optimistic person. And I am. So to kind of shift that weight a little bit from the difficulties, I think the beauty is that we are in the middle of a chaotic something new and have the moment of courage to think big again. I think that was very difficult before because we were so exhausted of knowing how things worked. And that's kind of an opportunity to start from scratch with, okay, let's go back to the drawing board for one second and actually reconsider what the challenges are that we are facing in our micro communities and societies, and then see how this new technology, which is like bridging to enthusiastic individuals and organizations 
how can we use this environment at this very specific particular moment in time that feels revolutionary? And this moment will pass. In a couple of years, it won't feel that way anymore. How can we use that to actually provoke excitement and continue working on something that has been an issue for decades? So, I mean, you said you didn't really have a question, so I'm, I think it's fair if I don't really have an answer. <laughs> so, I'm going to end there with that thing. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think that's really fair. I mean, after I think we came over our initial wave of euphoria and excitement around the space and acknowledged and witnessed some of the things that aren't fulfilling, I've still come to the idea that Web3 and, you know, the ideas around it more generally is that it gives us the option to try to rethink things through or reapproach different systems. And while there's no guarantee of whether they will work or not, we have the option to try. Whereas before in certain situations, we just had one way of doing things. So I think there's still like light at the end of the tunnel about thinking about new systems right. and maybe certain projects or certain organizations won't work out or not everything will be decentralized and maybe it shouldn't, but yeah, we have the option to at least try. Yeah. And I noticed that you're a member of a number of organizations, including CyberBat DAO. Yeah. And I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about CyberBat and your experience as a member there. Yeah, we are a little bit dormant right now, organized in like an artist club and an operations club. I'm part of both. And we had a digital art fair in Hong Kong and giving some of our artists opportunity to exhibit their work at Art Dubai this year then being invited to NFC Lisbon and some other really awesome activities and collaborations with bigger platforms in the space. CyberBot is a collective community uh, founded by Linda Dunia, who is one of the brightest people, not just in the space, but beyond. She's such a gift. One year ago, approximately, started with a show, which was the first NFT-related exhibition on the African continent. It took place in Senegal in the Gallery of Wanma and had a digital reflection of that exhibition on foundation at that point in time. And that's kind of how we started. And we realized like the people who came together kind of worked very well. They were very, very different people who all have in common that in some way, shape or form, we relate to the African continent in our ancestry. We have people in the DAO who are from Zimbabwe and now live in Canada or in London. We have people like myself who grew up in Europe but had one parent who came from Africa. We have African-Americans, people who are still on the continent. So it's very, very diverse in terms of our relationship to the continent, but that's what we kind of share and have in common. And it's really supposed to be a place embedded in Web3 where artists are being provided with opportunities to accelerate or support their independent artistic careers. And that can come in many ways and, and shapes and forms. We don't really follow a strict agenda or anything. We are exploring different opportunities and collaborations. And I think we made it a point to take it slow didn't, you know, announce being a DAO and launch a token immediately and just commercialize our vision, basically. But we are growing, consolidating very slowly. Also, Linda is pregnant. Her daughter is going to come out in, like, she's, she was supposed to come out a week ago, I think. <laughs> and she's still not around. I don't know what she's doing. But yeah, so one of our main protagonists is like super busy with stuff. Uh, we are around and the most important thing is many of our artists are doing incredibly well, like Adesola, for example, Moons and Diamond, Lana, Linda herself, obviously, Kenza Suari, May. So I hope that gave kind of an overview of how we don't really have an agenda, <laughs> but we are, but we are there and we're going to be there five years from now as well. Are you interested in the idea of DAOs? Because we've already spoken about quite a few big picture things. So, you know, I don't want to be annoying, but if you're interested in the idea of DAOs as sort of an alternative to, I don't know, what we might call traditional organizations, whether that's a nonprofit or a company or whatever it might be, DAOs can be sort of this different way forward of bringing people together with a shared vision with a varying degree of decentralization. You know, it could be anything from 
a DAO, just a group of a few friends that for whatever reason want to be a DAO to buy an NFT or whatever it could be. Or it could be this huge DAO like, you know, Compound or MakerDAO or something like that. It's cringy, but there is a good Winston Churchill quote along these lines that says, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others that have been tried. And, you know, DAOs are sort of this way to at least try and bring a democratic element to how we make decisions. So just to give a personal example, I have worked at a university and the way that roles and compensation are decided is very rigid and has nothing to do with what value someone might actually bring, but has to do with what they were hired to do. And they were hired for a certain reason with certain qualifications and all these other things. Whereas in a DAO, a lot of times the compensation is way more flexible and is more based on, well, what did you do? What did you get done this month? You know, what, how can you help? What do you want to work on? It can be unbearable at times, but you're tasked with not only figuring out what is your job, but how you're going to do it. So broadly, we are wondering if you see potential in this new way of organizing communities, or is this something that you've thought about? Yeah, I mean, I need to learn more from both of you in that regard, 100%. For me, being an adult right now, None of us has ever been paid. And we knew that from the very beginning, we tried to kickstart the operations with a crowdfund on Mirror. And it just didn't work because we didn't sell enough work. And so we just had to keep bootstrapping and that was fine. But at a certain point, you just wonder, not everyone can afford it at the same uh, intensity anymore or even at all. And like I can't imagine that many DAOs that were passionately started that way function the same way. And even if you have money in the beginning, it doesn't mean that you still have money six months later. And (laughs) so I believe in people, the chemistry, how they complement each other in their passions and visions and skills and priorities. And then the second step is, okay, how can these be organized to benefit a larger idea or structure? And I think that the exciting thing about DAOs is that many, many people who are interested in them are progressive thinkers, are like doers, are active. And that's, I think, why I'm excited about them. But I have yet to encounter a DAO from which I know, at least, that it does work both in a social, cultural, and economic sense in a healthy way. I have been asking for examples in my small circles, and I got tumbleweed because I think many DAOs are actually... (laughs) struggling and behind the scenes. I don't know how decentralized the DAOs are. It is such a sexy word. I mean, I love the word DAO. It's like, I mean, you just want to say it, right? It's like, you want to have the t-shirt. I want to have the t-shirt. I don't know. But what does it really mean? And yeah, so I don't know enough. I haven't been participating in, in any DAOs apart from the Cyberbot one really actively to actually know what it's like. And if there is really a DAO that manages to determine compensation in an objective way and not related or entangled in already existing difficult social hierarchies, show it to me because I want to learn how that works. Because from my experience, people are afraid to vote, to talk, to contribute, to say anything that is maybe against people who hold more power than them. And I want to learn or unlearn. And so... Yeah, if if you have any recommendations or whatever, I have zero idea what it looks like behind the DAO's scenes. And one thing I know is, and I don't know the people, unfortunately, I just uh, was very impressed by their transparency, I guess, and their accessibility in terms of how their structures is. Mirror DAO, you know, the guys who run the Mirror publishing platform. Right. I think when they were in the process of becoming a DAO, they were like super I had never seen anything like it. And I have yet to read everything that they published and listen to everything they released. But yeah, I mean, do you think that DAOs... I mean, what is a DAO? (laughs) Well, I mean, I think it's interesting that you bring up that DAO is a sexy word because I think that's a really good point and it belies something that happens a lot, which is that people want to use the word DAO because it has cultural cachet, but they Mm -hmm. don't necessarily want to actually follow through on what a DAO could be. And I, I think the other problem with DAOs is that we're using one word, which is DAO, but really this is a spectrum 
of different things. So on the one hand, on the extreme of decentralized would be a DAO that is actually autonomous and is governed on chains. So for example, if the DAO is voting on something to spend money on whatever, and the vote passes, then a transaction is queued and executed. Whereas on the other end, a DAO could be just a group of people that have the same token and they have funds in a shared wallet and they go buy something, but it's all based on trust and they just are making decisions in this casual way. So it's this whole spectrum of a range of how centralized or how decentralized this can be. And I I remember Briley and I ran into a couple of friends on the sidewalk one day and they were asking us about what we do. And we were saying like, well, you know, we actually work for DAOs. You know, that's what we do now. And, you know, after explaining it to them, because of course, there's always this awkward period of, okay, so first of all, here's what a token is. And then here's what this is. And you have to go through like seven different things. And then finally, at the end of it, you get to the DAO part. And you're like, okay, so a DAO is this. And, you know, by that time, they're half asleep. They said to us, wow, so you guys are from the future. (laughs) And it was just a funny moment because we realized how insane we sound when we talk to people because they work in like an office or they work at, you know, right. uh, whatever. They they work for a business or something. And then here we come along and we're like, okay, so every month, we, you know, we, we vote on who gets paid what and then we do, you know, and it just, it sounds so radical when you actually sit down and explain it and when you actually wrestle with the fact that you are trying to rethink and overhaul the way that people work together and the way that people are paid and the way that consensus is formed and all of these different things. And it's nowhere near perfect. In fact, it's extremely flawed. Like you said, it comes back to people, not technology. But when we actually confront that, there is a lot that is experimental about this, I think. And we certainly (laughs) have experienced some of that with the coordinate system, which is how compensation is decided. But it's full of flaws because, as you pointed out very poignantly in, in our conversation, if ultimately we are making these systems that boil down to people, then all of the flaws of people will also be present in those systems. It's just a fundamental truth that we'll have to deal with. And I think trying to come up with better ways to organize ourselves and work together and find adequate and fair compensation and all these things are such huge problems to solve. And I think it's fun that we're trying to solve them, but man, we don't make it easy. These are such complex issues to address, you know? Yeah. And like, I think you said we make it complicated. I think that's the flaw of our species. An interesting tension or contrast that comes up when I think about DAOs. The one hand, it is so, yes, you're from the future. And one of the most radical changes is that it's hopefully finally break our idea to pay people for their time, which is an outdated idea that comes from the Industrial Revolution, really. But it's over. So how can we you know, compensate not paying people by the hour, but for something else? And at the same time, the urgency of new and efficient and liberating economical structures come from such a neoliberal idea of thinking that is also connected to many, many issues that we're actually having as a society when it comes to mental health, for example. Maybe I'll sound abstract right now a little bit because I'm I'm interested in contemporary philosophy and how we can imagine a new way of thinking beyond just efficiency and like being subject to our own self-exploitation. And, you know, the more advanced technology becomes and the more efficient our organizations become, I think we don't even realize what sometimes what we're actually doing and why we're doing it. And so I think technology and culture are inherently intertwined and it cannot just be about economy. It has to be about something else as well that maybe takes much, much more time to actually get to. It's difficult because... On the one hand, it does feel like the DAO model is really rooted in tech and the primitive of the token. But like you said, I do think it's also a cultural thing because it relates to how we form organizations and whether we do that in a more vertical way or a more horizontal way. And probably my least favorite thing about the traditional art world is the assumption that we should all be thankful to work in it. So therefore, we should be okay Mm -hmm. with making $14 an hour. And there's this Mm -hmm 
notion of Mm self-sacrifice that comes along with the vocation of the artist, whether that's, well, artists should expect to be poor for making their work, or also that we should be okay with working at a museum and getting paid poorly, everyone except for the director, of course, who's making like $400,000. There's something about that way of framing working within a cultural context, whether that's art or whether that's, you know, dance or any other form of culture that I would really love to get rid of. So I do see some promise in the more horizontal structure of DAOs. Again, to go back to the example I gave earlier at the university, right now I'm preparing this budget for the photography program and it's a seven-figure budget, like millions of dollars. I'm by leaps and bounds the lowest paid member of this team. Like I teach one course there, I get paid almost nothing to teach there. I do it because I enjoy it, but yeah, I might as well work at a grocery store. And I'm the one preparing this enormous budget. It's going to take years to implement. It's millions of dollars. And after working in these new ways of organizing ourselves and new ways of thinking about compensation, it's made me really allergic to working in that context. And every time I do anything in that context, I'm like, you know, this feels wrong, you know, because what people are doing is not related to what they're being paid. And there's this huge disconnect that happens there. And now it's so important because like, I love that you brought it back to like a realistic circumstance that doesn't work. And one step further, even, I mean, you mentioned that you're the lowest paid person on the team while you were handling a seven figure budget, which is then this next step being spent on people <laughs> who are not going to be able to make a living from what they're going to school for. So yeah. it's like, or even getting in debt in order to not be able to live from what they were educated to do. What is it even that we're educated to do? But yeah, I think, let me actually ask you a very specific question to make it like super specific. How do you feel about the universal basic income idea? Well, mixed feelings about it. And also Briley should give her thoughts as well. I don't want to be the only one talking in this segment, but I, I feel like on the one hand, it could solve a lot of the anxieties and the mental health issues that come along with wage labor, like that feeling of worrying about whether you can afford your basic expenses. And I think that anxiety, it just looms, you know, it hangs over you all the time. And I think that the cost of that is enormous. And I think that people worrying about their rent and their food and things like that has just it's hard to even think of how widespread the effect of that is. So I think in that sense, a UBI could be really beneficial because it would alleviate some of that anxiety and some of that weight that people feel. And if people were not so worried about meeting their basic needs, then what would they do? What would they do with their time? That's an important question. If someone didn't have to do the stupid bullshit that they do to fulfill their basic needs, what would they spend their time doing? What would they learn how to do? What would that person then be capable of? On the flip side of that, it could also be a way for governments to say, okay, well, you've got this, so you're on your own. (laughs) You you don't get any of the other perks anymore because you got this one. Mm -hmm. So I think that we also have to be careful of giving up perhaps these other things that we hold dear, like maybe healthcare benefits or other public services. Again, we're talking about kind of a neoliberal framing. Maybe we'll view this as a barter to say, well, you got the UBI thing, so you have to worry about your doctor bill. And I think that could be a slippery slope as well. I think broadly, what we're trying to solve is how do we keep people busy? Because the reality is, is that there are so many jobs that are completely pointless. So many administrators, so many people working in offices are doing jobs that could be so easily automated and should be automated. I think if we look at grocery stores putting in these automated checkouts, it's so obvious and you can see it around you. But then we're faced with this huge problem of what are people going to do if we can't do these basic tasks? Like how do we keep people busy, but also be able to afford them a comfortable and healthy lifestyle? that fulfills their basic needs. So I think we're wrestling with this question. Because I also wonder, also in the context of NFT photography stuff, like what are we going to talk about in a year from now? Is it still going to be NFT collections, really? I just feel there's something under the surface that wants to come out in a way, like something where we feel like, aha, this is why we did it. Or this is where we were going and now, now it's here. But some days I'm like super optimistic about We're actually going to new places. And on other days, I'm like, are we or is this going to be regretful in like a year from now, how we spend our Mm. time? And if I have that weird intuition, sometimes I wonder, what does it take 
for us to do as community-minded, spirited people, to not regret anything we invested our time in. Do we really have to surrender to the people with the most power and biggest wallets? Or how can we organize ourselves? Don't you have a saying, like, pick ourselves up by the bootstraps? <laughs> something. <laughs> so <laughs> and create something that is future-oriented. And I don't know if it's just going to be connections or am I missing something? Yeah, no, it's definitely a good question to ask. NFT photography is definitely still in its infancy. And I do think that we bicker over really small things that will not matter at all in the future about the idea of traditional artists being in the space or people that are, you know, active on Twitter every day or not, or, you know, how that relates to NFT sales and who we should give money to or assign value to, because these things are just, it's so new. And photography has always been about technology as well. Like there is always a, a reversion to digital photography when it first came out. And it, I feel very similarly about NFTs. So I do think that we still have a long way to go with regards to what are we really trying to achieve with this or like where will this actually be in like a few years from now but in the context of the future and where we are headed i'm wondering if you can share what is coming up next for you whether it's for your practice or work or even something else you know give us the acacia alpha Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> Thank God I, I made these notes yesterday and put them on my wall. So I have like a timeline of what I need to do when the latest. But yeah, finally, finally, a story I've been working on for National Geographic is going to be published this month. And it was like one of the biggest milestones for me to work with NetGeo and actually happened. And so that's going to be released hopefully this month. And then I'm thinking about minting the work as well and just seeing how this will go completely different from what I've been releasing so far in the space. So and I have two group shows, one opening in August, one in September. Then Behold the Ocean solo exhibition still has to be really produced in terms of bigger pieces and be collaborated on with the curator. Yeah. And then I'm also working on like this project about my father, Resilience, um, where I think I'm on a path to having found how I want to show, distribute, and release it to the world so I can get rid of the weight that I'm still carrying on my shoulders and move on from it. And that's also something I'm working on right now. Okay. And where can listeners find your work? Where should they go online to see what you're working on? Well, listeners, <laughs> why don't you just come to Switzerland and like, come to the show and do something in real life and hang out at the show, which is opening on the 22nd of November in Geneva. And if you're going to stay at home on the internet would be acosiavictoria.com. You don't know, need to know how to spell it. You can just go to my Twitter, Ava Silvery, and find the link. Thank you so much for joining us, Acacia. This has been a real treat to sit down and have such an honest and open conversation about everything happening in this space and in our lives. We'll definitely be following your future projects closely and hopefully one day fly over to Geneva or vice versa. Thank you so much for having me. And, I, and I'm sorry that you have to go through the edit of the episode, but at least you're being paid, I guess. So yeah, there's that. <laughs> Yeah, thank you for having me. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Acacia. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of The Raw Review. You can find us online at rawdow.xyz and on Twitter at TheRawDAO. Join the conversation at discord.gg slash rawdow. The Raw Review podcast is for educational, informational, and entertainment purposes only. Views expressed by guests and the hosts do not reflect the views of RawDAO. The Raw Review podcast is not investment advice or a solicitation to make any financial decisions. NFTs and cryptocurrencies discussed in this episode are not endorsed by RawDAO. Do not purchase raw tokens, other cryptocurrencies, or NFTs in anticipation of financial returns. Please, Please do, do your, your own, own research. research.